From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, May 17th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Today, the war crimes trial of former Bosnian Serb commander Rako Mladic is suspended. We'll hear why. It happened just after prosecutors described the 1995 Srebrenica massacre in chilling detail. And later in the program, a U.S. Army captain who sat down with an insurgent leader and tried to get inside his mind. You've got to defy every single prejudice he has against you that were aggressive, that were unforgiving, that we want to kill him that we want to arrest him, that we want to punish him, that we want revenge. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. It was a dramatic second day at the war crimes trial of Rako Mladic at The Hague. The former Bosnian Serb military commander is facing 11 charges, including genocide. Those charges stem from the war in Bosnia in the 1990s. Today, prosecutors gave a detailed description of the biggest atrocity Mladic is accused of ordering, and that is the July 1995 massacre of thousands of Muslim men and boys in the town of Srebrenica. But then a judge suspended the trial indefinitely, citing a mistake by the prosecution. The BBC's Alan Little covered the Balkan Wars. He is at The Hague today. Describe for us what happened in court today, Alan. Well, it was an embarrassing but not a catastrophic day for international justice, and the court officials here are frustrated that there will now be a delay in this process. The prosecution omitted to share, omitted to disclose thousands of pages of documents which the defense had, uh, were entitled to see. They should have been shown those documents as long ago as November, and this only emerged uh, in the last week or so. The defense say they now need six months extra time to process those documents and prepare their response to them. The prosecution didn't challenge that claim, so the judge is now under pressure to delay this trial even further. And it's kind of a shame that that's what's grabbed the headlines here, because it doesn't mean when you say that uh, the trial is indefinitely suspended, it sounds as though the trial has collapsed. It hasn't. Far from it. The trial has simply been delayed until a date that is yet to be announced. And so the, the, the shame really is that the, it's stolen the headlines from the substance of the evidence that was presented today. Let me just ask you briefly, that was 7,000 pages of, of uh, documents the prosecution had that weren't shared with the defense. But from what we're hearing, this is basically a clerical error and nothing more ominous than that? It is. It's not more sinister than that. The defense accept that it was a clerical error. It's happened before, though, so they're getting increasingly frustrated and irritated with it. One court official here did say to me, though, you know how this will be uh, spun by Mladic's supporters in the Balkans, in Republika Srpska, the Serbian part of Bosnia, and in Serbia itself? People will say, there you are again. They're conspiring against the Serbs. Mladic is not going to get a fair trial. So it is damaging. It is a, it's only a clerical error but it's still damaging for the reputation of the process here. Talk about the videos that were shown today in court today, Alan. What was was, uh, Mladic's role in those videos? 
Well, the atmosphere in court was extraordinary because there was a kind of hushed and slightly stunned silence in the public gallery, which was full, remember, of survivors of the genocide, women whose husbands and sons were killed by forces whom General Mladic commanded, as we learned what exactly happened in Srebrenica in those few days in the middle of July 1995. We learned how Bosnian Serb forces closed in on the enclave, forcing 40,000 people to take refuge in the narrow confines of that overcrowded and insanitary town, how they swept through there, they separated the men from the women, they took the men off to secret locations, they could discuss among themselves what the suitable locations for mass murder would be, how they were parceled up to seven or eight different locations and then uh, machine gunned, shot by firing squad in groups of a thousand sometimes, some small groups, some very large groups. But in the space of three days, 7,000 men and boys aged between 16 and 60 uh, were shot. That was the that was the substance of the evidence that was heard today. General Mladic, we understand, is going to mount a, a, a defence of alibi. He says that on the day those killings began, he drove to Belgrade. He went to Belgrade for a series of meetings with the United Nations officials and to attend the the, the wedding of a family friend. So he's saying, "I'm sorry, I was at a wedding. I knew nothing about it." The prosecution are saying that is simply not a credible. A defense that a commander like Mladic had the absolute loyalty of his troops and killing on that scale could not have happened without his knowledge and indeed without his authority. Alan, I wonder for you what it was like as someone who covered this massacre at Srebrenica and has been following this for so long to be there today and to see Mladic himself. You know, I met Mladic 20 years ago and I used to follow him a lot uh, in the in his glory days, if you like, as a as a war hero among the Serbs. And I think I had a sense back then in the 1990s that he would end up in a prison cell in The Hague. I can remember as early as 1993 uh, writing a piece two years before the Srebrenica massacre. I wrote a piece in which I said, after, this, after the famous United Nations Safe Areas Declaration, in which I said, when and if Srebrenica falls to a Serb advance next month or next year, whenever it happens, when Mladic's people take hundreds of men out into a field and kill them, summarily execute them, let none of us dare to say we didn't know it was going to happen. Because we knew. Because all the signs were there. Because it had already been happening for more than three years. It's, the pattern started as early as 1991 in the war in, in Croatia. Something similar on a smaller scale happened in Vukovar in eastern Croatia in November 1991. So all the signs were there for years before it actually happened. And so I think we knew and we didn't do anything about it. And that, for me, as a veteran of the Yugoslav conflicts, is a very uncomfortable and even disturbing realization. Thank you very much. The BBC's Alan Little speaking to us from The Hague at the trial of Rakum Mladic. Thank you again. Thank you. Israel is a nation of immigrants. The Israeli melting pot includes people from all over, the Middle East, North Africa, Europe, North and South America, the former Soviet Union, Australia, even South Asia. Now, for the most part, these people share a Jewish background. In its 64-year history, the state of Israel never planned on receiving large numbers of uninvited non-Jewish immigrants, but they're coming. Tens of thousands of Africans have crossed into the Jewish state in recent years, and that's created an uneasy coexistence, as the world's Matthew Bell reports. Tel Aviv is known for its beautiful beaches, beautiful people, and carefree spirit. But the Hatikva neighborhood on the city's south side has a very different reputation. 
A total of about 50,000 people from different African countries have come north from Egypt and across the Sinai Desert into Israel. Half of them have arrived in the country in just the last couple of years. This area of South Tel Aviv is one of the places they've settled in large numbers, and some of the locals are not very happy about it. A man who gives his name as Yeheskin sells shoes at the outdoor market. He says he was born in this neighborhood, he is a patriotic Jewish Israeli, and these Africans have ruined the place, he says. They are criminals, drinkers, and freeloaders. This is Israel for me, not also for Africa. This no problem. The solution, he says, is to put all the Africans on trucks and drive them back to the border with Egypt. The idea is not too different from what Israel's interior minister said this week. After four Africans were arrested in connection with the rape of a Jewish woman in Tel Aviv, the minister told Israel's army radio that it's time to get tough. He said most of the Africans living in the country are not legitimate refugees. They are criminals, he said, infiltrators. They should be detained and then given grants to help them leave the country. Other politicians have a more lenient view, but the problem isn't going away. The scene at Levinsky Park in South Tel Aviv is a vivid example of the scope of the dilemma. Most African foreigners who enter Israel illegally get detained as soon as they cross the border from the Sinai. When they get released, they are driven to the bus station near here and dropped off. Hundreds of them end up making the park their home. People sleep on blankets and live on food donations. They try to get whatever temporary work they can, but most African migrants are not given work permits. 33-year-old Tedros Desta is one of the lucky ones. He left the political turmoil in Eritrea and came to Israel almost five years ago. He says he can't go back home. It wouldn't be safe for him. He managed to save up enough money to open a small clothing shop, though he can't get a business license. Life here is better than it was in Eritrea, he says, but it's not a good life. Uh, Why I'm saying uh, not a good life, we came here to ask a refugee. We asked uh, an asylum, but almost five years, without any interview, without any uh, status changing, we are here. In 2008, they promised us to have an interview and to decide whether we are a refugee or not for every individual. But they did nothing about their promise. Another man from Eritrea, which is where most African migrants come from, tells me he did not come to make a new life in Israel. 32-year-old Haile says Africans are coming to Israel for protection from a repressive regime back home, but they're not getting it, and they're stuck. We are less fortunate people. We need help. We know that. But no one is now on our side. We are always crying. So I don't make dialogue with developed countries like in the West and in Europe, how they can resettle refugees from Israel to developed countries. You see, refugees are getting mad or they are uh, developing uh, mental insanity from time to time because everybody becomes fed up and they are pessimists. They have no any hope at all. A root cause of that legal limbo is the fact that Israel has never developed a clear immigration policy for non-Jews. In the meantime, prevention is the priority. The government is building a new fence along the border with Egypt. In addition, a huge new detention facility is being constructed. But what to do about the tens of thousands of African migrants already living in Israel has become a contentious political issue. Yesterday, a nonprofit group that assists migrants said it received threatening phone calls. 
In recent weeks, a kindergarten for African children in Tel Aviv was gutted by an arson attack. There was at least one other attempted firebomb attack at an apartment building where Africans live. Still, it's not hard to find Israelis who are sympathetic to the plight of the migrants. Yehuda Elimelech manages a restaurant in South Tel Aviv. Here, those people, the people that want to live, they want to take care of themselves and leave politics on the side, and you have to think what you're going to do with this problem. Of all people, Ali Melek says, the Jews who've been through so much persecution should be thinking about how to help these people in need. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Tel Aviv. Coming up next week on The World, we're going to hear how one British man's lifetime path was determined at age 11 by a written exam. Looking back now, it it was certainly the biggest single determinant of my future. For a few decades, Britain used a test to decide which students would go on to elite schools. Most of the students failed the test. That's part of our week-long series on class and social mobility around the globe. We'll feature along with the stories daily online crossword puzzles. You can get a jump on the action by texting the word CLASS to 69866. Message and data rates apply here. Just text CLASS to 69866. The story of how one prominent hospital founded by a renowned humanitarian is healing itself, coming up on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. A modest number of al-Qaeda fighters has reportedly established operations in parts of eastern Afghanistan. According to the Reuters news agency, that means there's a new al-Qaeda presence in Kunar province along the porous border with Pakistan. U.S. Army Captain Michael Colton knows the rugged mountains and lush valleys of Kunar province well. Until last month, the 29-year-old was the commander for Bravo Company at the Army's combat outpost Monty in Kunar. He saw a lot of combat there. Colton lost some of his men in battles with insurgents. About two weeks after he took over as commander, he did something that seems counterintuitive, but it's something many commanders in the region are now doing. He placed a phone call to the head of a group of local insurgents his unit had been fighting. He wanted to let their commander, a man named Masood, know that he was open to talking. He also set out to forge alliances with local elders. He invited them to his base. He set up a big wood hut, lined it with pillows, and put down a rug. When the elders came to talk, Colton served them tea, at least in the beginning. I kept serving tea for the first month, and finally my interpreter told me, we drink tea 24 hours a day. We want energy drinks and Coca-Cola. I'm talking about 60-year-old men who fought the Russians. They want Mountain Dew and not tea when they come to visit me. Mountain Dew and other high-voltage caffeine drinks. Captain Colton was trying to build trust and gain intelligence. Finally, Masood, the Afghan insurgent commander he'd been playing phone tag with for months, showed up at Colton's camp. He's about four foot eleven, which was pretty disappointing based on the legends that he comes with. I thought he was going to be six foot five, and uh, he weighed probably one hundred and ten pounds. Had a pretty sizable beard. Had a pretty full head of hair, almost to the point of like beach bum. Do you know how old he was? Yeah, he's about 40 years old. His face looked like he could be 70, but his uh, very frail body. And uh, I was very uh, underwhelmed, I guess is the word. You couldn't let on to him that you were under impressed. 
No, I, I, um, he's feeling you out. The whole experience is him trying to see how you're going to react. You got to defy every single prejudice he has against you. So his, his perception of Americans is that we're aggressive, that we're unforgiving, that we want to kill him, that we want to arrest him, that we want to punish him, that we want revenge. He knows that he's responsible for the death of Americans. What should my reaction be to that? It should be to want to get revenge. And so he's trying to see, is there is there an opportunity here for forgiveness? Because there is a an avenue in Pashtun Wali, which is the code of the Pashtun culture, uh, to forgive your enemy. And so he's trying to see, where are you at as a person? And so I'm looking at, we're sitting down at this wooden table, and the conversation really doesn't go anywhere other than, I know your family, you know me, what's agree to continue to talk? As long as you call me once a week and make an effort to come see me in person, I will not hunt you. So we came to an agreement and he called me every week from that day forward. And uh, within two weeks, he was giving me the best intelligence I ever received Uh, because he was a high enough level commander. He was attending meetings with the highest level commanders in Northern Kunar. So he was still participating in all the, the planning of the attacks on my base was he, me, was he part of the conducting of, of these attacks as well? Did he personally participate in, in more attacks? Probably not. But how much control does he have on his fighters? Uh, they're loyal to him, but at the end of the day, they operate in a, in a very barbaric, violent organization. And so if he lets on that he's become weak, that he's become soft, he risks losing control of his fighters. And, uh, you know, the number of fighters he controlled, probably about around 100 how many of those were in his inner circle? I can tell you about 20 of them were loyal to him to death. And then the rest were probably connected to him, but based on his success as a fighter. And so it's not just about reconciling him. Uh, the goal at the end of the day is to reconcile him and those hundred guys. And uh, I made it very clear to him, I, I don't mind killing his enemies either. So uh, what I told him is, like, hey, look, I know, and I start naming names. You know, sometimes Afghans are a little surprised how much you can know about their culture because i would talk about people's uncles second cousins and i would know how they're related and i just look i know that this guy is trying to kill you i know that you guys are um, enemies and he's my enemy as well he's killed afghan civilians he's killed and when i say kill i'm talking like kidnapped him and executed him and i said help me get rid of this guy he's a he's a disgrace to everything that you stand for and that's one thing that is a challenge, is how do you frame this guy for yourself and your soldiers? Is he evil, or is he is he someone that has something worth fighting for? Here I am in someone else's country, and I'm fighting to kill other human beings for a cause, and then here's a guy that's killing my soldiers for a cause. Is he that much different than me? That's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. Yeah, including some of your own soldiers. You had uh, in your company one soldier whose brother had been killed in that very region. So how do you reconcile that? How do you talk to your soldiers about that? Were they angry? With Andy, the officer you referenced, his brother was a good friend of mine as well. The brother who his had brother, killed. Yeah, and uh, Matt, the uh, officer that was killed, was killed after doing a key leader engagement with elders as a guest of the elders, meeting them in their village. And on the way out from that village, he was ambushed. I think the residual angst is the fact that Matt was doing the same thing that me and Andy are doing. 
Yeah, and he was I killed. Mean, look, he was killed. How could you and how could Matt's brother Andy, who was part of your company, not feel a sense of vengeance? Right. And again, you, you stop there at the first order effect. You stop there and you say, okay, bad guy, we need to kill him. Can't trust him. That's where you stop. And that's where a lot of people stop. Let's take it one step further. Now you know how that feels. Let's empathize with our enemy. Let's see where they're coming from. Because maybe that experience alone helps us not create distance, but actually connects us with our enemy. If he is willing to kill people out of sense of betrayal, and I'm willing to kill people out of a sense of betrayal and for revenge, then maybe we have more in common than we think. And that's kind of the connection that we made. Um, Is that a great leap, though, Michael, when you're in the heat of battle or at least under the threat of an attack? How do you convince these guys? How do you even convince yourself that you and the enemy have more in common than not? Yeah, I think my soldiers wouldn't necessarily agree with that approach, that the risk was worth it. But I think that's kind of where we're at in Afghanistan is, is the new definition of courage is risking yourself to protect um, innocent people and to reconcile fighters. And, and that new definition of courage is, I think, slowly changing the culture of, of my army. I would tell you with the benefits that we, we gained, I mean, the intelligence, it begot on itself. I mean, it grew from a one meeting to full-blown reconciliation. Now him and his fighters uh, this month are actually reconciled by the Afghan government and are going through the reintegration and getting vocational training and getting stipends from the Afghan government. I mean, that's where they're at right now as we're talking. That would never have happened had I not taken those risks in July 2011. Captain Michael Colton, thank you. Thank you. Michael Colton was the commander of U.S. Army Combat Outpost Monty in eastern Afghanistan. Colton says that after his first meeting with insurgent leader Massoud, his company never found or struck a roadside bomb on the main road again. By the way, he also says Massoud's brother happened to be one of the tribal elders he'd been inviting to his base for lunch and Mountain Dew. We've got pictures of Captain Colton, including one with Commander Massoud. They are at theworld.org. This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, authorities in Turkey want to stamp out shouting at open-air markets. Some Turks can't wait for the peace and quiet. Others don't want to lose the old ways. Well, this is a tradition normally. You know, they shout their products. (laughs) Like this is okay. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. We spent a lot of time on this program looking at charities at work in the developing world, devoting time and money to help the less fortunate. But charity can have a downside. It can discourage recipients from taking responsibility for their problems. Many aid organizations struggle with this question. How do you help people to help themselves? How and when do you hand over control to locals? 
A historic hospital in Africa is now facing that challenge, and after a hundred years healing the sick, it spent the past year healing itself. The world's David Barron has our story. The hospital was founded by one of the great humanitarians of the 20th century, a Nobel Peace Prize winner whose name has largely faded from public consciousness. Albert Schweitzer was a German-born philosopher and theologian who in 1904, at age 29, decided to rededicate his life. He would begin the study of medicine, preparing himself to go to Africa as a doctor. This documentary on Schweitzer received an Academy Award. He did not go, he has said, to bring white civilization to the primitive land shown in these old photographs. Rather, in a sense, he went to atone for what white men had done in this land already. From 1913 until his death in 1965, Schweitzer ran his hospital in what was French Equatorial Africa. Today, it's the nation of Gabon. He didn't think that this hospital would last. He always said, well, after his death, this will fall down. But it has lasted, thanks in part to people like Hans-Peter Mueller. He's a Swiss surgeon who first volunteered here in 1996. Back there you have pediatrics, you have maternity, and far back it's the internal medicine. The Albert Schweitzer Hospital treats almost 30,000 patients a year. It's not Gabon's most modern or well-equipped hospital, but some say it provides the best care in the country. Patients often travel for hours to be treated in this remote town called Lamborene. The hospital sits above the Agoe River on a lush campus with mango and breadfruit trees. Dogs and chickens and children wander the grounds. Bonjour. Hans-Peter Mueller lives in Europe, but he comes here several times a year because he serves on the hospital's governing board. He's raised millions of dollars for the hospital back in Switzerland. Yet when I met up with him last fall, he was questioning what all of this effort had accomplished. Hello? He walked up to a young boy sitting outside the hospital. The boy was eating a mango, his fingers and face smeared with pulp. Mueller tweaked the boy's nose. And you see, those people, are, they are very warm. If you talk to them and so on. But behind, of course, they always wait for, for something. A white man is coming... Let's ask him to do something for me, for me. It's this, this uh, dependency. And who is, whose fault is this? Of course, it's ours. We have come in and uh, made them a bit like this. It's been a hard year at the Albert Schweitzer Hospital, a time of soul-searching by whites and blacks. And yes, color matters here. For most of its history, this hospital was paid for by white people and staffed by white people. The hospital functioned with a lot of Europeans, says a longtime Gabonese nurse, Mapimbu Sophie, better known simply as Mama Sophie. The doctors we had were European, she says. So were the nurses, the office staff. But in recent years, that's been changing, says Hans-Peter Mueller. It has always been the goal to make out of this colonial hospital or post-colonial hospital a real Gabonese hospital. Or at least a hospital where the Gabonese and outsiders are equal partners. 
Today, almost all of the nurses and doctors and office workers are black African. Much of the hospital's funding comes from the Gabonese government. The board is majority Gabonese. And yet whites have generally remained in charge. Taking that last step, sharing control of the hospital, requires trust on both sides of the color divide. And recently that's been in short supply. Things came to a head last year. For some time, black staff had complained about the most recent white director of the hospital, a retired French military officer. The hospital's chief accountant, Pierre Claver Bouca, says the director was arrogant, abusive, racist. He hired a technical director whom he asked to oppress the workers, the Gabonese workers, the black workers, saying that the Negroes don't work properly if they don't oppress them. He said that? Il a dit cela. Yes, he did. The director, Mark Libesar, adamantly denies having said that. In an email to me from France, he contends that the staff was embezzling, stealing funds, paying unearned overtime. Libesar says he tried to clamp down, and that caused the workers to rise up against him. Indeed, last May, the staff staged an illegal strike. They blockaded the hospital. They chanted and carried a coffin with Mark Libesar, the director's name on it. Libesar and two other white French managers departed the hospital and the country. The events left the hospital without a permanent director and left everyone scarred. Hans-Peter Mueller says some European board members even contemplated closing the hospital for a time. We only heard through emails what, what the hell was going on, uh, and we said, we can't go on like this. Uh, a hospital Schweizer with a strike like this and people uh, carrying around uh, coffins, you can't accept such comportement uh, uh, the way they do it. Huh? Many Gabonese workers were also stunned by the turn of events. Again, the nurse, Mama Sophie. Quelqu'un a fait une révélation. Someone had a vision. The great doctor, Albert Schweitzer, was looking across the river and had turned his back on the hospital. In our worldview, it means he was very angry about how things were going here. Because the dead aren't dead. Everything that happens, the dead see. The staff prayed for quieter times. Meanwhile, there was tension on the hospital board, what one member called a deep ravine between the Gabonese and Europeans. The one American on the board is a doctor at Harvard Medical School named Lachlan Faro. The European board members were frustrated over years that the Gabonese board members were not effectively enough engaged in the hospital. And then they say, nothing's going to happen unless we do it ourselves. And then the attitude that's experienced by the Gabonese is these white people from outside don't respect our efforts, so why try? And then you've got this vicious circle. Foro saw an opportunity to change that dynamic. Gabon had elected a new president who vowed to tackle the corruption and inefficiency that's long plagued this country. Meanwhile, Lachlan Faro became president of the Schweitzer Hospital's board, and he vowed to reach out to the new government and to the Gabonese members of the hospital board. He wanted them to help chart the hospital's future course. We're going to show how you do it in a spirit of solidarity rather than charity.
That's what he said last October. Putting that philosophy into practice hasn't been easy. Gabon's president had promised new funding for the hospital, but the money took months to materialize, and Faro had to fight to get it. The president wants the hospital to train Gabonese medical students and work more closely with the public health system. Lachlan Faro embraces those goals, but he says now that coordinating efforts with the government has been frustrating. There have been a number of times when... uh, it really has seemed like this is hopeless. Am I crazy? Uh, you know, can this possibly work? Is the country ready, or is the um, the shared vision that I really believe people have um, really true or powerful enough to unite people across all the different divisions that they've had? Um, and there've been you know times of uh, deep despair. But he believes the hard work is starting to pay off in a new relationship between locals and outsiders, blacks and whites. And he can point to a major recent development. Remember the white French hospital director driven out by the staff? Several months ago, I asked hospital workers who would they like to see as a replacement? Would they like a Gabonese director? The answer, no. A white man should be the director, said nurse Mama Sophie. She said three-quarters of the staff want the hospital director to be white. Gabonese members of the hospital board, like René Adiaheno, agreed. We want to maintain the multicultural character of the hospital, he said. But Hans-Peter Mueller, the Swiss surgeon, said Gabonese members of the board shared with him a different reason why they wanted a white director. They didn't think anyone from their country would have the right skills. They said... Oh, Dr. Muller, nous ne sommes pas encore mûrs. We are not ripe yet. We are not ripe yet for this. Board President Lachlan Faro wanted to challenge that thinking. He searched for and found an experienced Gabonese hospital administrator, hired him to be deputy director and to serve as interim director. And after several months, this man, Antoine Nzenge, won over the staff and board which voted unanimously last month to make him the permanent director. Lachlan Faro returned to the U.S. from the board meeting and sounded encouraged. The Gabonese staff, when I was at the hospital this past time, uh, told me how wonderful Antoine was. Uh, one of them, may even have been Mama Sophie, um, one of them said, uh, uh, he, he has saved the hospital. That may be an overstatement. The Albert Schweitzer Hospital still faces huge obstacles. A million-dollar budget deficit, antiquated facilities, a rising burden of HIV and tuberculosis. But for the first time since the hospital was founded 99 years ago, an African is in charge of finding the solutions. For The World, I'm David Barron. You can see pictures of the Albert Schweitzer Hospital then and now at theworld.org. Today's GeoQuiz starts with a rose, but it's not a flower. The rose we're talking about is really a fish, and it comes from a particular sea. The sea borders six countries, including Turkey. Now, if you don't know the answer, and even if you do, listen to our next story. It takes place in Turkey's largest city, Istanbul, which recently banned shouting by vendors in open-air markets. But few are complying, as Matthew Brunwasser reports. It's the Saturday market in Istanbul's Besiktas neighborhood. Yüksel Özevin is singing about his pomegranates, softly compared to some of his colleagues. 
He says the new noise ordinance is ludicrous. Imagine going to a stadium to see a soccer game. Would you enjoy the game without shouting? Bazaars are just like stadiums. If you can't shout, there is no joy. Mehmet Karlada is letting shoppers know that he's selling anchovies from the Black Sea, otherwise known as the Rose of the Black Sea. He says that everyone knows they're much tastier than the ones from the Marmara Sea. Shouting, Karlada says, helps his customers make informed choices. Banning the practice would make no one happy. I swear it's nothing but rubbish. When we shout, we attract customers. If I'm selling something for seven lira a kilo and someone else for nine, they can come and buy from me if it suits them. City officials say they will respond to noise complaints first by giving vendors warnings. Then there will be fines. And finally, vendors could lose their licenses. There's no question that this market is a noisy place. But most shoppers don't seem to mind. Turgut Denizji doesn't get what all the fuss is about. Well, this is a tradition normally. You know, they shout their products. <laughs> it doesn't bother me unless they go over the top and shout too much. But, you know... Like, this is okay. <laughs> Denizji says the new law could change the feeling of Istanbul's commercial culture. It'll be quiet. I mean, it won't have the same atmosphere. Yeah, this is not a supermarket. This is an open-air market. <laughs> but some think the tradition is annoying and backward. Cameron Derugiolu hates shouting and wishes Istanbul officials crack down harder. She says shouting is characteristic of Turkey's undeveloped society. When the level of education rises, the more enlightened people are, the more quietly they speak. The sellers are so economically deprived that they think that they will get what they want just by shouting loudly. When he sees my microphone, Mehmet Sami Evi starts singing about his beautiful tomatoes, drumming on the tin bowl from his scale. Then a colleague joins in. Evis says he's famous in the market for having the most beautiful singing voice. But he says the vendors are resigned to the noose tightening around their necks, so to speak. Personally, I will not resist whatever the lawmakers decide. All our necks will be thinner than hair when our heads are placed in the guillotine. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser. You can see and hear how those vendors hawk their goods at theworld.org. And by the way, the answer to our geo-quiz today is the Black Sea, home to those anchovies known in Turkey as the Roses of the Black Sea. You're listening to The World on PRI. That's Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, with family heirlooms, yard sale bargains, and long-lost items salvaged from attics and basements. Experts reveal the fascinating stories behind these hidden treasures, Mondays at 8, 7 Central, on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The Bombay Royale is an 11-member musical group from Melbourne, Australia. The band's inspired by the music of vintage Bollywood movies from India. But band members have added many different elements to the mix. In fact, you can hear the results on a new album called You, Me, Bullets, Love, 
original motion picture soundtrack. Now, as with any good spy thriller, we're going to keep you in suspense. You'll hear the music in just a moment or two. First, though, meet the three key members of the Bombay Royale. The mysterious lady, Pavan Kaur Singh. The skipper, otherwise known as Andy Williamson. And the tiger, Shura Bhattacharya. And you sound tiger-like to me. The original. You should see him. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, the album is the original motion picture soundtrack. The thing is, there's no movie, right? Oh well, <laughs> <laughs> we're looking for backers. <laughs> there's no movie. No, 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 it, no, well, there is one in our minds, but there's no actual film yet. Well, I want to hear about what the action would be, and maybe you can take us through some of the songs because that would help set the plot. Uh, let's start off with the title track, You, Me, Bullets, Love. You know, it's basically an espionage mission. The mysterious lady and the tiger have been sent in to infiltrate the skipper's gang of decoits, as they're known in India, or bandits. But uh, they're also inadvertently falling in love, even though they shouldn't be, jeopardizing the whole thing. And a lot of this comes out in our video clip for that track. That's the one we've done a music video for, so you can get a bit of an idea. Yeah, just synopsis. <laughs> Vintage spy stuff and really suave, and I don't mean suave. <laughs> <laughs> and whose idea was that, uh, to kind of capture the vintage sound of, say, 1960s, 70s Bond-type films? Initially, it was, I got the ball rolling in terms of I, I'm an arranger and musician as well. And um, This is Andy. I, yeah, it was the music that drew me into it. You know, to Western ears, it's sort of very, it's very familiar. There's some very, you know, you know it'd be surf guitar and um, even the influence of things like the Beatles. But then there's a sort of fusing them with an Indian aesthetic as well and all their folk and classical forms. And so you end up with this really interesting fusion. Marvin, uh, you you play this part very well, and and sometimes in English, and sometimes I guess in in is it Hindi you're singing in uh, in a few of the songs, Hindi and Bengali as well. And Bengali, let's hear this song, Sote Sote Adirat. Yeah, that's um, uh, one of the first ones that we released, and also it's a cover. It's uh, one of the only cover songs on the album. What does uh, Sote Sote Adhirat mean? I was sleeping and halfway through the night I opened my eyes and I thought of you. And I thought of you. It, in those few words, it means all that? Well, no, actually, Sote Sote, sote Adhirat is sleeping, sleeping half the night. 
Uh, and in what language are you singing there? Hindi. I wonder what it's like since there is so much going on behind you. I wonder in the studio, uh, Parvin, what it's like to be singing with, what, uh, a 10-piece band behind you? In the studio, it's not so bad because I've got the headphones and I can control the volume of how loud I want them to be. Um, Obviously, on stage, it's a different sort of... It's a bit problematic in the sense that I've got horns on one side, a big drum kit behind me, and uh, it is... An experience though, it's so uplifting, the music is really, it's such a full sound that I kind of just float on top of it and just let myself naturally just do whatever it is that comes to me. Shorov, give us the image. What are we seeing on stage when, when you guys are singing? Well, you're seeing uh, the centerpiece is often the skipper. So the skipper's in a full naval regalia, hat, sunglasses, saxophone, and he's striding the stage. The tiger and the mysterious lady um, are at the mics, They're sometimes looking at each other. Um, so there's a lot of interplay between them, but the rest of the time they're sometimes dancing, um, while they sing. And then you've got the rest of the bandits with their bandit masks on and their various costumes. You're just seeing a lot of colour, a lot of movement and, you know, 11 people having a, a really good time. We've got, we've got big banners with tigers on them. We're still, you know, basically a live band, but we um, just try to add a bit of, you know, that sort of uh, sense of occasion and the cinematic to the performance. I really enjoyed uh, the album. It's so much fun, and you can't help but have fun, I would think, if you're on stage or or, uh, in the audience watching this. You know, the cover alone is pretty exciting. (laughs) It's also available on vinyl if you're interested. Yeah, it's even bigger and even more orange on vinyl. So, (laughs) (laughs) Really nice to talk to all of you. Thank you so much. Uh, The Bombay Royale, and good luck with the album. Thank you, Lisa. Bye. Bye. Shorov Bhattacharya, Parvin Korsing, and Andy Williamson of the Melbourne, Australia band The Bombay Royale. And you can see that album cover and the video for You, Me, Bullets, Love at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins, and thanks for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.